hello there. Welcome to the show. Today I have another exciting guest. I feel like the last three or four podcasts I've had a bunch of different guests, but I have Nick Dabbs. Nick, how's it going? Going good. Hello. So today we are going to be reviewing the book Dune by Frank Herbert. I am a bandwagoner. I did not think about reading this book until everyone and their mom was reading this book. Yes, I didn't even know it existed until I saw the trailer for the movie. Okay, so uh, I guess my mom is like super in the know because her and my dad actually saw the 1985 version like before they were dating. And I remember them just talking about how boring the movie was because it was like three hours long. Hopefully they've recovered from that by now. Yes, but she had purchased all of the books at one point. We had a kitchen computer where like we did everything for school and everything and above that there were some cabinets and i remember she had like five of the dune books up there and i never read them dang but you always saw them they always looked out over your childhood from above well i think i tried to read them at once and i was like this is too much for me so i stopped because they're kind of at the level of lord of the rings in terms of the writing yeah definitely and but even more so than lord of the rings it's all the terms it's like the prose is yes. pretty crazy, but like literally in three pages, you're assaulted with like an entire encyclopedia of different words. Exactly. And I, I like in Lord of the Rings, I know what an elf is. I know what a dwarf is. I don't have to go look that up. But in yeah. this book, it's very different. So um, just to start out, Dune is written by Frank Herbert, which uh, funnily enough, I used to think that his name was Frank Herbert Dune. I didn't realize that like Frank Herbert was his first name and Dune was the name of his book. That's funny. But it was published in 1965. So we're like 35 plus 20. So 56 years late on the review. So we're a little bit behind. And it's kind of funny that I haven't read this because I am a big fantasy guy. I read a lot of fantasy. So so do you want to give a sort of setting of the world? Just kind of give a broad overview. It's funny because the book doesn't start on Dune, which is the title planet. You start off world. No, it doesn't. At the, the home world of the Artreides, which are some of the main characters in the book. The book starts, everyone is sort of on this normal Earth-like world. Uh, but all roads lead to Dune. A.K.A. normal world, they have water. Yes. <laughs> all roads lead to Dune, which is this planet that has hardly any water. I mean, virtually no, no water. And it's just this sand wasteland, very Tatooine-esque or Geonosis-esque. So, yeah, just the setting. I mean, that's that's pretty much it. I mean, it's a big dust ball of a planet that most of the events of the story take place on. One of the things that I didn't know about it was that it actually, I think it inspired so much of modern day fantasy and science fiction because the whole like house aspect is very similar to what you get in Game of Thrones. Mm -hmm. It really, I was, I was struck by how many faint different things it reminded me of. Like you had that, you had the political house system of game of thrones you had obviously like the science fiction general setting of star wars you have it almost seems like the more you read the more comps you had to previous stories that you've read or movies you've seen it just seemed like a collection of all of these different i don't know forms of media that we've seen before all in one place no i i definitely was familiar with the books but i never really got into it um, but you can tell after reading this book that it really influenced so much of what we know of science fiction and fantasy. Totally. Yeah, it, it it definitely has like some of the identifiable elements. Like there's like a messiah 
figure, like a chosen one kind of figure who is um, like the anchor of the book, the main protagonist, and he's going on this hero's journey. But even though that's there and is obviously something that we would think of as like a genre convention, it's not quite as simple as that. Like his, he has a couple of angles on that trope that you wouldn't expect. Like it's not all just peaches and and cream for the hero figure who's just, you know, learning and growing. I mean, he has this enormous internal dialogue that's constantly there. He's, he has a lot of doubt. Like he, he even, he, he isn't convinced that his ultimate destiny is something that's going to be good for, for his people which is totally an awesome way to approach something that familiar that we've already seen a bunch. Definitely. And so the the main story kind of starts out with this the House of Trades and the main character's name is Paul and he's like what 17? He's he's young, 16, yeah. 17. Um it's his father is the duke of the of their house, the House of Trades and they are given the leadership of the planet Arrakis, which is this this dune planet, this sand planet. Now, the reason for this planet, or the importance of this planet all revolves around what they call the melange or the spice. And this spice is sort of the, I don't want to say it's like the life force of the, of the empire, but it, without the spice, the empire would fall because the spice allows them to travel in space, but it's also it can give like foresight and and knowledge. So the whole economy of the empire, the Imperium revolves around the gathering of this spice or the melange on the planet Arrakis. So House Atreides is given this planet to sort of take over the um, harvesting of this spice. And that's sort of where the story starts off. That honestly was one of the coolest parts of the book for me was how it's, it's all set up. Like, like you were saying, it's like, okay, we, we understand from the get go that there's this spice. It's super critically important to the economy, essentially of the entire universe. And the emperor has given, has assigned House Artrades this task of moving to this planet and overseeing the operation of extracting it, mining it, all of that. And you're like, cool, cool. That sounds great. That's like kind of the first chapter. And then boom, like the second chapter is from the POV of the enemy house to House Artrades. And they're articulating essentially how this whole thing is a complete ruse by the emperor. This is an elaborate scheme and trap to just eradicate House Artrades. And you're like, what? That, that's like chapter yes. two is like you, they set the direction of where you think it's going and then immediately subvert that. And then I seem to recall, I can't remember if this actually happened or not, but it seems like back in Artrades perspective in chapter three, they even throw around the idea like this, this could be a trap. Like this, um, we we think this might be a trap. Oh, no, they definitely they definitely know it's a trap. Yeah. but they their position of the house is that they really they have to accept this position. And if they could somehow spring the trap and you know overcome it, then they will be for the better. Yes, definitely. And so what that does is even in the first you know three or handful of chapters, you're just so um, unsure and and instable in the plot of like, what is going to happen? Like I, I already in three chapters, I thought we were going this way. That's already a, going in a different direction. And now I know that the main characters know 
that it's going to be going in a different direction. So you're yeah, you're immediately exactly. just thrown off, which is such a cool feeling to have going into a book. A lot of books such as Game of Thrones are very similar to Dune in the way that you're really not sure which sides the people are on. So for example, you have the Duke and you have his son, Paul, they're obviously on the same side, but then you have the Duke's concubine, which is Paul's mother, and they never get married officially for political reasons, but for all intents and purposes, like that is his wife. And she is sort of on her own side because she is a part of this, um, I don't know if it's like a cult or if it's like the religion the Ben Gesseretti or something like that? That that group or cult or faction or whatever you want to call it, the descriptions of their membership, their motivation, and then the powers that they're each trained to have were probably some of mm. my favorite parts of the book. Paul is the result of years and years of breeding from the Ben Gesseret to create this sort of messiah figure. Yes. One of the sickest parts this is just kind of a tangent but since we're talking about that group one of the sickest parts of um their agenda or or strategy was that they had i think the term was like the like the missionaria protectiva or something like that yeah this is super fascinating to think about yes where like a long time ago members of the group had just planted these seeds of prophecy in all of these different planets, like across the universe. And over time, they germinated across different groups of people and tribes. They latched on to these prophecies of the future and have all developed this sort of instinctual understanding that one day there is going to be this figure, this Messiah figure who comes and provides redemption. And it's like they did that as like a self-surviving tool just to make sure that like their um, their group would be able to endure into the future. And they, they could use that, those planted seeds to their advantage if they needed to, um, which is a totally wild and, and crazy way to protect a, a group. But then you see that actually bear out um, in Dune when, when Paul, who, who eventually becomes sort of this Messiah figure, is interacting with people on Dune who interacted previously with these little seeds of, you know, a coming Messiah and whatever. Of prophecy. Yes. And it's so crazy because I think that's one of the themes in the book is like, you, you sort of have two explanations for fantastical or mystical things. You have, you can read it from a religious perspective and like, oh, the events that are happening are all lining up with a mystical prophecy. Or you can read it from the perspective of the Bene Gesserit, who it's like, nah, we just we just completely planted all this stuff. It's all just a bunch of made up things for our own survival. It's like a political type of messiah, which is really interesting to think about. Yeah. Especially since this takes place in 26,000 AD. <laughs> yeah. So like there's ideas of like biblical story that they kind of tie into their fake or real religion, however you look at it. So I guess we can kind of start off talking a little bit. Obviously, if you can't tell from the way we're talking about this, we both really enjoyed this book. Um, I was very much pleasantly surprised by this book. Um, it was, I, I really didn't know what to expect. I started reading it and I was like, this is right up my alley. I'm, I'm normally not a science fiction guy. I'm more of a, a fantasy, sort of like high fantasy, elves, dwarves, orcs kind of thing. Like I, I prefer that, but um, I really did enjoy this. But one of the things that uh, Nick might have mentioned at the beginning 
was that once you start reading this book, it's you're flipping to the glossary for like at least the first 20 to 30 pages. Mm-hmm, totally. So you're looking, you're reading all this stuff, and there is no explanation. There is no explanation for these words and these these uh, terminologies, these different houses, the different people, these different the emperor and the emperor's aides and these the the uh, what's it, there's like the trade federation. I don't know if it's called the trade federation. The space guild. I feel like Newt Gunray, Newt Gunray, like comes up in every single podcast I do with you. So we'll just throw Newt Gunray in there. Just think of the the trade. Yeah, that time when Newt Gunray appeared, yeah, and he just shows up, and he was like, "Is that legal?" <laughs> you feel like when you read this book that it's not. This series has been going on for like seventy books, and I just am like reading one right in the middle. Yes, totally. And like I, I did not like that at first. I, I found that kind of frustrating. But then as I was thinking about it later, and I was like. I love this book. I, there can't be anything wrong with it. So I have to go back and justify even the parts I didn't like when I was doing that whole exercise. Yeah. I was like, maybe it was kind of cool. It was like an effective way to just totally bring you into another place. It's like you're just so, so immersed in this totally foreign alien culture, universe, economic system, whatever, that those terms just kind of help you really, it, they convince you that you're not, you know, and on Earth in the year 2021. What did you think about, if I can ask a question, um, what did you think about slash perceive about what he was seemingly trying to say about like environmentalism? Okay, I guess that's a difficult question because the ideas of environmentalism in 1965 are very different from the ones that we get now fed to us by the news. Uh huh. And I think that, I mean, as Christians, we have the idea that we are stewards of God's creation and like that requires taking care of it. But, you know, I we also believe that um, we have dominion over creation, so we are supposed to use it. And I think that there is a bit of that in his book where it's like you don't, you have to respect the created world, I guess, in, in their mind. I don't know if it's created or if it's, you know, evolution or whatever. I don't really know. But you have to respect the created world or the natural world. Um, and they sort of talk about, I think, abusing the the planet Arrakis to like rip all of the spice from it. But then at the same time, it's like this idea that there's a lot to Arrakis that they really just can't tame. Yes. Yeah, I think it's so fascinating um, because you have kind of that, like what we understand is um, environmental like politically charged environmentalism where it's Mm -hmm. like, okay, here's a, here's a resource. If we over farm it or over harvest it, it's going to be to the absolute detriment of everyone. Don't. And and then the associated fanaticism around that, Mm -hmm. um, rather than like understanding it as a more complicated issue, like that is there, but there's also, (laughs) I mean, I know this is something we both thought was really cool. The, passion and motivation that a lot of the um, tribes people have on Dune to totally change their planet. Yes. uh, And terraform it. Yes. Which is like totally a wild... Unbeknownst to the Empire. Yeah, unbeknownst to the Empire. And one of the, probably my favorite character in the book is an imperial planetologist, like an ecologist or scientist sent by the Empire. Um to live on Dune and, and analyze it. And I guess, I don't know, be like a scientific liaison for the emperor actually on the planet. 
and his name is Keynes mm-hmm. or Kynes. I think I said I think I said Keynes in my head. K Y N E S. And funny enough, he's actually being played by a girl in um, the film adaptation. I think Denis Villeneuve was asked about that, and he was like, "Why not?" <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so Keen, the Imperial Planetologist Keynes, his whole thing is like he's. I think he went a bit rogue from his imperial mandate and is like, I, I definitely want to terraform this place and make it into a, a beautiful place with, with water that flows and trees and green things and all these things. But, um, and I'll try to be, I'll try to dance around some of the spoilers here where this comes in tension with sort of the classical political environmentalism that we were talking about is that to do that, to realize their dream of terraformation, which is so like beautiful and articulated so well in the book, that actually requires, in some sense, destroying some of the native creatures and species to Dune that make it what it is today. And so it's like every step towards terraforming is actually a step away from protecting the natural elements and environmental aspects of the planet, which is really, really interesting because you, you definitely have both presented in the book as, as good things to strive for protecting, you know, native species, protecting like what makes the planet what it is. But then you also have championed, like we, we also can make it better, but there's cost with making it better. Definitely. And I think that that kind of ties into something we haven't really mentioned, but the the native people that live on well okay this is something that i also wanted to ask you about i don't think they're native oh interesting they don't they didn't they i don't think they were there by themselves or i don't think they lived there and then the empire came i think that they were brought there by space travel and then they sort of inhabited this planet so it wasn't like they were here from the beginning huh and so the there's a sort of this contention between the quote unquote natives of the planet and the empire, obviously, but mainly because it's uh, there's a lot of tension between the previous rulers of the planet, whereas they're very racist towards these people. Um, and I definitely think that the movie's going to go all into the racism and stuff. Just there was a few things from the trailer that I thought were kind of stupid. Yeah, that's interesting. I don't think I had ever even considered that. I think I just definitely was thinking all throughout the book that the Fremen or Freeman, the native people were um, like original to Dune. That's so interesting. There's something that makes me think that they aren't, but if they are native to Dune, then I guess that makes a little bit uh-huh. more sense. It just doesn't seem like a planet that would have native people on it. It's not habitable. Uh-huh. And and see here, this, this rubs up against what we were talking about earlier too, where there's like, it seems like Frank Herbert is always presenting you with like multiple ways to view the same event which is a really really cool balance to strike so it's like we were talking about like the um the messiah like their perception of the messiah that you could view through the filter of being like this religious spiritual mystical thing or you could look at it from a very literal explainable perspective of nah this group a long time ago planted these seeds just to trick these people and serve their own gains same here with the terraforming um because Keynes, the imperial planetologist has these freemen um, doing all of this work, this very specific work to, you know, collect and harvest the, any amount of water that they can to do all these things to bring about terraformation, which from his perspective is like, it's very technical, it's scientific, it's explainable. It's like, we want to make this place a better planet. 
But they, again, are filtering all of this work through a religious lens, a spiritual lens. It's like, this yeah. is a, this is like holy work um, that he has assigned us. Um, it's, and so you just have that constantly, like both of those things are just warring in your head while you're reading this book, which is, it's a really cool place to be. Yeah. And that kind of gets into the idea of the spice as a resource or the spice as some sort of religious tool. There is an actual aspect that the spice, um, grants these properties that allow the person to somewhat see the future, but it's more of a, um, it untaps like the potential of the mind to be able to sort of consider every single option that could yeah. happen. Um, and that's sort of what gives it the power that it has. And then, and then you get into the idea of like water as a commodity versus water as this sort of like holy object. And that's sort of how the, um, the freemen look at it. So like, I have a quote here, um, where they say, but all of man's water ultimately belongs to his people, to his tribe. It is a necessity when you live near the great flat. All water is precious there, and the human body is composed of some 70% of water by weight. A dead man surely no longer requires that water. Mm. So they like actually harvest the water from dead mm -hmm. people because that's how precious this water is. Yeah. Yeah. It, it seems like Frank Herbert is very interested in objects or ideas that are like exactly in the middle between having a very like rational explanation, but also having some kind, something like a spiritual effect. I was watching this one interview with him where he, he wasn't really going into the religious aspects of it, but he was talking about like leadership and what he like, some of the messaging he wanted people to come away with from like a, like how they perceived leaders. And it was interesting because he, he went off on this tangent in the interview about how we don't have a healthy mistrust of government anymore and how like yeah oh, like how america was it was in part founded on a healthy mistrust of government and he feels like we've lost that and that we over messiahify charismatic leaders precisely because of their charisma which i mean i think is of course true ha always has been probably for humanity but he feels very strongly about that and intends dune in part to be like a cautionary tale against just um, fully signing up to do whatever a Messiah figure promotes or intends or tells you to do. He, I think his quote was like, it's like Messiahs can be uh, all right people, but you should always perceive a warning label on their forehead that says, you know, um, may cause harm <laughs> or something like that. That's interesting. He, yeah. he said that his he said that his favorite president was Richard Dixon <laughs> because he reminded us to mistrust government. I'm like, that's so interesting. Oh, uh -huh. that's interesting. And that was sort of it, like, around the Cold War as well, you know, like the space race and all that. So that was an interesting, like, time period. And I don't think that if you just gave this to me and I read it, I would be able to tell you when it was written. Yes, that's, I think that is a great point. And I think that speaks to, like, it's just timeless quality. Yeah, and I think that's something that, you know, we look at fantasy, the fantasy genre, um, I don't I, I'm interested as to see is what we'll look at Game of Thrones like uh, in 20, 30, 40 years. Um, but the Lord of the Rings definitely has that quality. And Dune now after reading the first book has this quality of, you know, aging very, very well. So overall, if we can kind of sum up uh, what we've kind of said, if I was to, to review this from like a, a numbers print, which I'm not going to do, I would just say that 
this book definitely exceeded my expectations by tenfold. Wow. I was expect I've read a lot of old fantasy books. I've read a, a lot of fantasy books and I like I'm not an expert on this at all. I'm not an expert on fantasy books. I'm not an expert on literature or anything. But I've read a lot of fantasy books from the 80s, from the 70s. And so I know the kind of vibe a lot of those guys are going for. They're they're sort of uh, pointing their core audience at like the D&D guys, like like people like me. And I don't get that vibe when I read Dune. I feel like this book was written for anyone. It was written for not just sci-fi or, or fantasy guys, but for, for anyone. And it tells a really compelling story. It just sort of tells it in a sci-fi universe. One of the things that he, um, on your point that it's for anyone, one of the things that Frank talks about in another interview I listened to is like, someone was asking him like, who does your book appeal to? And he's like, well, I'll answer that question by telling you um, the different college courses that use Dune as a textbook. He's like, I've heard that it's used in economics courses as required reading and architecture courses, philosophy courses, religious studies courses art courses like it it, it draws wow. on all of these subjects and and handles them so masterfully and interweaves them into the story there really is like a little bit for for everyone and it's it's deep analysis of each of those aspects and how they interrelate in the story he's telling are you going to read any of the other books well my roommate harrison braun who i also who on episode <laughs> also previously. gets yes and he also seemingly gets mentioned on every on everyone we do it's it's newt gunray and harrison braun and harrison um he just bought me actually the prequel that i don't think frank herbert wrote i think it's his son and some other guy who went back and collected some notes and then wrote a prequel i think it's about like how how house artreides came to power atreides yeah which is kind of cool interesting so there's six books total, I guess seven counting the prequel. I thought there were like 10 or 15. Maybe not. <laughs> oh, maybe there are. When I just looked on for like a box set, like six is the number that I see. But I, I'm definitely going to look into getting the, the rest of them. I've heard I've heard they're not as good, um, but we'll see. Mm-hmm. I probably won't review every single one of those. Did you know the movie's coming out in two parts? Yes. Yeah. And honestly, I'm very glad for that because... I was I was thinking like how on earth are they going to fit all the events of the first book or of the book into one movie? It just doesn't seem possible. And so it's much a big book too. Yeah, it's a big book. And so much of it too is I mean this is probably the same with any book to film adaptation is understanding what you what details you're willing to sacrifice since you don't have enough time. But there are so many details in Dune and like it, it is the details that make it so interesting, like just the little um, whether it's like foreshadowing details of like, oh, what is what is about to come later in the book, world building details, like cultural details about the different various groups and houses that are interacting with each other. So much of this book is built on and relies on like these just one sentence, seemingly throwaway descriptors of what's happening. And I just feel like that is. Number one, very hard to adapt in general, but impossible to adapt completely in one like two hour movie. So I was very glad that they're splitting it up. So the movie comes out in October. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure like the exact date. Um, again, I would not have read this book if it wasn't for the fact that I'm a huge bandwagoner and I just jumped on the bandwagon of wanting to read this book before the movie came out. Um, but I'm glad I did. 
Um, I cannot be the type of person to be like, oh, I read this before it was cool, but that is not true. I, I, I definitely read it when it was cool. I, but Nick, you're pretty excited about the movie. Definitely. Um, and there's like a lot of big name actors in it. I'm not really sure of like all the, um, the names of the actors, but I've seen them in a lot of things. Yes, it is a, it is a star studded cast and the director, Denis Villeneuve is a very hot director right now. And it's cool hearing him talk about making this movie. He, I mean, of course you would be, you would need to be a huge Dune fan to want to make this. And he is like, he said that was a book he read as a kid, like just over and over and over again. And, um, appreciated how, like, I I think he made the comment, like the sci-fi or or fantasy books he was reading at the time weren't intellectually engaging. And this was one of the first sci-fi books he read that that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. They like totally captivated his mind and he's a very intellectual kind of guy. Um, and so I think he was drawn to it. I think he's going to do a killer job. It's, it's going to be. I think pretty similar to some of his most recent stuff, like uh, like Arrival or like the Blade Runner sequel that he made, where it's unmistakably sci-fi, but it's going to be very philosophically heavy, which of course is great for what Dune is. And it's going to be maybe a bit slower. It's going to have a very intentional pace to it. I think honestly, he is the perfect director to make this movie. The movies he makes feel exactly like how Dune feels. Yeah, and I'm excited about it too. And I think what we should probably do is we should get John to watch this movie and then we could bring back Ruckus Reviews and and kind of review the movie, but have someone who hasn't read the books and and kind of get their take on it as well. We can have Bruno come back too. And we can spend the last 15 minutes just bashing Wonder Woman again. I would be totally down with that. Well, thanks for coming on the show, Nick. Pleasure to be here. Uh, We have a lot of exciting things on the horizon. So I have Nick and Dylan Reimer coming on for a history of the Numenorean kings um, of the Third Age in Lord of the Rings. So that's going to be a intense podcast discussion. I still have lots of prep to do for that. (laughs) But it's going to be good. I I think it's super interesting. Yeah. Plus, Dylan's an awesome guy. Has he been on the podcast before? Not yet. No, I, I, I texted him and asked him if he wanted to do it. So you'll definitely want to be here for that. So if you have any questions, which I have yet to get a question from any of my listeners, um, you can email me at maximumpodcast at gmail.com. Eventually, I'll transition away from Google, um, but it will be quite a while before I do that. If, okay, so anyone who asks a question will get a Hershey's almond chocolate bar. So if you ask a question and email me at maximumpodcast at gmail.com, I will send you in the mail, in an envelope, a Hershey's almond chocolate bar. Perfect. So thanks for listening.